This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. I don't know the first thing about investing my money, and it is all so overwhelming, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I love that Acorns makes it so easy, and how you don't need a lot of money to get started. So head to acorns.com creepers, or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Paid non-client endorsement may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com creepers. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC, Acorns, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorns Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Hey, hey. It's 2021. It's our first episode of 2021, and we're recording it on January 1st. That's exciting. So exciting. You know what I thought about with the new year? Hmm. What would happen if 2021 was like the perfect year and there was no crimes, no violence, no murder, anything? And I was like, wouldn't that be wonderful? Except we would have no content for a podcast. But... That would be really great, wouldn't it? Look, this is the thing, okay? If all murders stopped today, if all crime stopped today, we got the 70s, baby. We have so (laughs) much content. Like, we have too much content. (laughs) Yeah, this is us going on the record saying we would be really happy if all of it stopped and we could just report on past stuff. Past stuff. Exactly, exactly. That's my wish for 2021. And then maybe I could get my (laughs) life back and... (laughs) sleep better at night. (laughs) Yes. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogab, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. started mm, mm, uh, pumped uh, up mm, 2021 okay <laughs> <laughs> that was great that's a motivational video yeah that's my jazzercise 
my god maybe i will start that in 21 life doesn't happen bi-weekly so why should payday the money you earn can be in your hands today with earn in earn in is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to hundred dollars a day or 750 dollars per pay period just download the earn in app and verify your paycheck and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the EarnIn app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See EarnIn.com slash TOS for details. EarnIn is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. All right. Today... I am so excited for this story. I'm going to tell you about the wildest, twistiest, most diabolical heist I've ever heard of. Oh, I love a good heist. I'm glad oh. we're starting 2021. Does anyone die in this? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you had your chance. This is sometimes called the pizza bomber heist and sometimes Ooh. called the collar bomb heist. Oh. Are you familiar? No. I first heard about this like 10 years ago when I was watching – I watched this Jesse Eisenberg movie called 30 Seconds or Less, and I'm sure you've never seen it, so I'm not even going to ask. Okay. First of all, <laughs> you're right, but I maybe could have heard about it. So I always thought – so the movie is basically about Jesse Eisenberg. He's a pizza delivery man. He gets attacked by – these two guys that strap a bomb to him and uh, and have him go rob a bank. And that's basically the plot of this story. <laughs> I always thought that that movie was like intentionally based on this crime because as you will see, how could it not be? The filmmakers have all denied knowing anything about this. And I'm like, I don't think that's possible. Well, but which happened first? This heist. Oh. Yeah. Like... Well, that doesn't make any sense. No. And then my favorite show of all time, as you know, Veronica, Veronica Mars. Mars. <laughs> <laughs> they had their fourth season that came out a couple of years ago on Hulu. And there were definitely some nods to the pizza bomber case in there, too. So wait, obviously- you know, all of her. I think all of Veronica Mars is on Hulu, right? Mm hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm surprised you haven't tried to, like, make me watch that. Well, the fourth season really uh, turned me off from Veronica Mars for a while. I was very bitter. Oh, okay. I'm still pretty bitter. Yeah. Like, I have a picture with the creator of the show. Like, I met him a couple of times. And I have a picture with him. And I was literally drawing devil horns on oh this picture God. on his head because I was so mad at him for what he did. But I'm over it now. I still love Veronica Mars, and I just pretend that the last 15 minutes of the final episode never happened. And okay. So I won't be watching that. Noted. No. Yeah. Well, just stop 15 minutes before, and everything is great. 
I did have two big sources for this episode. And really, that's almost all I used because there was so much information. So I used an article in Wired magazine by Rich Shapiro titled The Incredible True Story of the Collar Bomb Heist. And of course, there's a documentary on Netflix called Evil Genius, The True Mm -hmm. Story of America's Most Diabolical Bank Heist. And it was produced by the Duplass brothers. And I only bring that up because I have a big crush on Mark Duplass. So So if you're listening, slide into her DMs. He's married, but (laughs) don't slide into those DMs. Just let me me admire you from afar like a real creep. Like the real creep you are. (laughs) That also brings me to my next point. So much information of this. I didn't want to leave any of it out. So this is going to be a two-parter. You're really (laughs) starting this year off. I mean, you had choices here. You had personal choices. And you're making really terrible ones at every turn. (laughs) Yes, I'm sorry. But honestly, it is worth it. Okay, it is well worth a two parter. Now be the you're going to want these details, Mogab. You're going to want these details. All right. Question: Is this the story that you were like? You're going to need a map and a web chart and a family tree. Yes. Yes. Uh, Okay. Did I send send it to you? No. And I'm not starting this without it. Hang on. Let me. Oh, sorry. Are you saying collar like there was a phone call or collar like on a shirt? No, collar like a shirt collar. Yeah. Well, I will just edit it and zoom in. Okay. I didn't sign up for a low quality flow chart. (laughs) Okay. Can't wait to see this. What is this chicken switch? Look, that's my flow chart that I made for you. Okay, well, if I flip it and squint and tilt my head and zoom in, it might do. Okay, this is this is bad audio. So, just for all the people out there, we will be posting this on the Instagram. Yes, I will post my beautiful flow chart that I made, Mogab, that she's so unappreciative of. Okay, yeah. Leave a comment if you think this is. <laughs> we'll leave it to the anyway. people. We'll leave it to the people. I just needed you to have it to refer back to, you know. Great. So this this flow chart I made is on Instagram. If anybody wants to get on there and <laughs> follow along on my flow chart that I think is perfect. All right. If anyone would like to make a better one, you could slide in my dance. <laughs> All right. Let's start with Marjorie. I'm just kidding. I have no idea where this starts, but she's in the middle. She is. Uh, we're really going to start with Brian Wells, though. So if you want to look on down. Okay. There. Why would he be way down there then? Okay, well, <laughs> that's why you needed a flow chart, okay? There's a lot. <laughs> all right, Lego. It all started at 2.28 p.m. on August 28, 2003. Brian Wells walked into a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, carrying a cane in his right hand. He had a T-shirt on that was bulging around the collar like he had something stuffed under there. He walked up to the teller and passed her a note because this was a robbery. <laughs> and this this note was quite a note. Usually banknotes are something short, like along the lines of, this is a robbery, give me all your money, don't call the police. But this note was a rambling diatribe that went on and on and on for nine pages. <laughs> So she's like, let me get my reading glasses out, lean back, like flip through this. Exactly. And now I will read all nine pages to you. For real? Just kidding. No. Oh, (laughs) dang it. Why not? That would take, that would take, that would get us three parts. (laughs) 
But basically, it said to gather the employees with access codes to the vault and work fast to fill a bag with $250,000. Why did that take nine pages? You just said it in nine seconds. I did. But they have a way with words, these bank robbers. I wonder at what point in the letter did she know like first sentence and then she's like peeing her pants, reading eight more pages? Or do you think it's like buried in page four? And she's like, I wonder what this is. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do you know? Like, at what point did she catch on? I I don't know. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was pretty upfront about what they wanted her to do. And then it just, I don't even know what the other nine pages said. But it said they only have 15 minutes. And most importantly, the note said that Brian Wells had a bomb on him. Hmm. Wells lifted his shirt to show a heavy metal device hanging from around his neck, which was the cause of the bulge of his T-shirt. The teller said it was impossible to access the vault at the time, but gave him all the money in the drawers, a total of $8,702. That's it? That's it. Wells was pretty calm during all of this for someone that had a bomb strapped around his neck. He grabbed a dum-dum lollipop from the counter and walked out of the bank sucking on it, not seeming like he was really in any big hurry. <laughs> he I'm got sorry. into his <laughs> Yeah. He got into his Geo Metro and drove off. Oh my god. We were just talking about Geo Metros literally yesterday. <laughs> we were talking about buying new cars and Russell's like, what's the most piece of shit car you can think of? And that's what we landed on. <laughs> that's just so timely. Mm. Okay, anyways. That's what he drove. But 15 minutes later, state troopers saw him standing in a parking lot nearby, which is really weird for a guy who had just robbed a bank. Mm -hmm. They threw him on the pavement, cuffed him behind the back, and then Wells tells them one of the strangest stories police had ever heard. Also, a racist story. He told the troopers that he'd been out on a pizza delivery and a group of, you guessed it, black men (laughs) grabbed him, chained the bomb around his neck at gunpoint and forced him to rob the bank. But he sounded desperate as he told the troopers that the bomb was going to go off if he didn't get the money to them and that he was not lying. One of the troopers cut the T-shirt like down the sides because he's handcuffed behind his back so they can't get the T-shirt off. So he cuts it down the sides so they could lift it up. And in the footage, in the documentary, you see the officer lift up the shirt, see the bomb, and then like back up like right away. And all the other police back up. They all get in their cars. They back their cars up. (gasps) And they're just kind of surrounding him. And they (laughs) – He's just standing there? He's – Sitting, He's just sitting on the pavement with his hands cuffed behind his back. The officers all took position behind their cars with their guns drawn while they waited for the bomb squad. The officers were pretty sure that it was a fake bomb, but since they didn't know for sure, they had to act like it was real, like, you know, treat it like it was real. Media has arrived at this point and are filming the entire ordeal live on the news. Oh, my God. At one point, Wells asked a trooper if they'd called his boss at the pizza shop. He didn't want his boss to think he'd just ditched out on work. I'm sorry. That is the last thing I'd be thinking about. Like I know. I just do not care. Yeah. He didn't seem all that concerned by the situation until the device around his neck started beeping. Nope. 
And when it started beeping, he looked down at it and then he tried to scoot backwards as if he's trying to get away from the bomb that's attached to him. Right. And he's yelling at officers that he's not lying and that he doesn't have much time. And it starts beeping faster. And Does he, he like starts pleads- scooting back faster. <laughs> no, he's like, he starts pleading with them to get the keys, to get it off of him, to unlock him. He asks, why is nobody trying to come and get this thing off of me? It's going to go off. Yeah, I, I and then panic. it did. It did. Yeah. And then on live TV, <gasps> the device detonated. Shut up. I definitely thought yeah. this was fake. No. Brian Wells was blasted <gasps> onto his back with a five inch gash ripped into his chest. Oh. His eyes got really wide and he gasped for breath before he died on the pavement. Oh, my God. The bomb squad showed up three minutes later. Okay, well, they're all fired. (laughs) Well, it actually, they explained it in the documentary that, first of all, they were 10 minutes away when they had called them. And then they had blocked off this whole area, this whole road, because he has a bomb on him. Yeah. But that caused all this traffic to back up. And so the bomb squad couldn't get through the traffic. They had to like. Wait, does the documentary, it has live footage because the news people were there. But did you actually like watch it happen? Okay, I I would like to say that. So if anybody out there has not yet seen Evil Genius, they do show it in the documentary twice. They show it once 10 minutes in. And I had read that because I looked, I Googled, do you see this bomb go off? Because I didn't want to watch it. And so they said, yes, they show it 10 minutes in, but they also show it at the very end of the fourth episode again. And I didn't know that. And so I did watch it. And it, I mean, you know what, though? In eighth grade, we had a watch. I'm pretty sure I watched JFK's assassination in eighth grade. I watched it in high school in in 11th grade. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I was in us. like AP history or whatever, but like, I'm pretty sure we didn't sign some release yeah. form for that. And that no, is like I, intense. Yeah, I, I, I still have that picture burned into my brain of me too. Yeah, I can that. still picture it, and that was yeah in two thousand three. Yeah, I didn't hear about this, which is the same year as this heist. Well, actually. I didn't hear about this, but I feel like I didn't know where Pennsylvania was. <laughs> so the police, probably traumatized all to hell, start investigating. And they started with Brian Wells's car. And what they found in there would take them in an entirely different direction. They found all of these handwritten notes that were addressed to the bomb hostage and contained instructions to rob the bank of $250,000. After Wells had the money, according to the notes, he was then supposed to go on this wild scavenger hunt following complicated instructions that would take him all over to find the keys and the combination codes that were hidden all over the place that would allow him to unlock the collar like his own personal escape room. Yeah, but he obviously didn't have that much time if it went off. Like, No, right. And these instructions were very specific and included drawings, maps, and threats. I hope those maps were better than this one because I don't even <laughs> see Brian's car on this flowchart. <laughs> The instructions promised that if Wells did as he was told, he'd be released. But if he failed or refused, 
they would detonate the bomb. Hmm. The note said, there is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. This powerful, booby-trapped bomb can be (laughs) removed only by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. I know that I'm more mature than this, but I cannot handle the word booby trap. (laughs) I hate it. (laughs) The scavenger hunt really seemed like a red herring to police. They plotted the hunt on a map, and it basically would have taken Brian in this big square around the crime scene, forcing him to stay in the vicinity of the bank in the same car right after robbing the bank. (laughs) And... So the bank was on Peach Street in Erie, Pennsylvania, and from there, you could easily get on the highway and be in either of two states within 20 minutes. Like, I can't understand that being from Texas. It takes us 17 hours to get out of the state. But in Pennsylvania, 20 minutes, you're in this state or this state. That would be the clear way to rob a bank. Like, get in, get out, get away. Why would the captors risk losing all the money like that? It would have been impossible for him to complete the scavenger hunt without getting caught by the police in time to find the keys, if the scavenger hunt was even real. Yeah, well, now I question everything because, you know, people are Mm -hmm. making up people and stabbing themselves. (laughs) No, he didn't stab himself. Well, but that's what I thought was happening. He had himself stabbed. (laughs) By his friend, I know. So now I'm just trying to think through what this is. Shenanigan. Mm Mm-hmm. So the police tried to complete the hunt themselves. And honestly, this would have been like my favorite day on the force if I were them because I love a good scavenger hunt, you know? Oh, my God. Investigators wanted to see if Brian would have had enough time to even complete the hunt, like you pointed out. Yeah. As well as to see if there were any more clues along the way. So they went at like the same time of day in the same type of vehicle that Wells had, that good old Geo Metro. (laughs) Where do you even find that in 2003? (laughs) Yeah, unless it was the car, unless they used his car. The first thing the note said to do was to go to a nearby McDonald's restaurant and find the small sign that said drive through open 24 hours. But ice cream machine always broken. Yeah. There was even a drawing of the sign in the note, and it showed the sign like planted in a flower bed, this picture, this drawing. By the sign, there would be a rock with a note taped to the bottom where he would find his next set of instructions. Wells had already accomplished this part before he died, and he'd found a note in the flower bed telling him to go to Peach Street to a wooded area several miles away where a container with orange tape would hold the next set of instructions. But he was caught before he got to that clue. Police tried to finish the scavenger hunt for him, and they did find that container with the orange tape. But while they were there, a blue Astro van started driving towards them. And the way this road works is weird, so I'm, I'm going to try to paint you a picture here, okay? No, good. Why don't you draw it, doodle it with your <laughs> pen? And- so there's a highway, okay, picture a highway that's just lined by woods, all right? Okay. Lots of trees along this highway. Yeah, I've been there. And at one point, there's a back road running through those woods perpendicular towards the highway, But it stops on the other side of the trees. So you can't reach the highway from that back road. Got it. Are you picturing me? Okay. Yeah, I've been there. Both roads, 
both roads would have had really easy access to this clue, like foot access to this clue. You could park and walk into the woods to get to the clue, but they didn't connect at all. And like I said, you cannot reach the back road from the highway. So the cops are on the side of the highway. They're on the highway side. And this blue Astro van starts driving towards them on that back road. Right. And when it sees the police there, it stops. And it just sits there for a while before turning around and driving away. And there was no way for police to get to that road in a car. So he basically got away. And they're convinced that it was someone involved possibly trying to gather up all the clues on the scavenger hunt before the police can get to them. Yeah, I mean, the person's in an Astro van. No offense, Mr. Williams, but that's sketchy. (laughs) His was not an Astro van. His was a Chevy. Oh. (laughs) So the police found the container with the orange tape, and inside there was a note telling them to go two miles south to a small road sign and to look for the next clue in a jar in the woods nearby. But by the time police got there, they found the jar, but the jar was empty. Hmm. So whoever set this whole thing up must have been watching it all unfold and had gotten to that clue before police. Probably the Astro van that had booked it there before the police could get there. Yeah, I wonder if the police feel bad now because they're like, well, if we would have let him keep going and doing these clues. Like, well, you know, maybe he could have gotten this off. And I think that's why they wanted, that's part of the reason why they wanted to do this scavenger hunt because right. police determined that there was no possible way that Brian could have completed the scavenger hunt in time for the bomb to not detonate. So this was something I was really confused about because I assumed, having spent my whole life watching like Die Hard, that the bomb detonated because the people that put it on him had set it off remotely. Like, that's what I had always just assumed. But this was not a bomb that could be set up remotely. And and I'll describe the bomb more, but it it was on a timer. It wasn't like they they set it up and and it started beeping because they're like, oh, he's caught. He's going to tell on us. Right. And they, you know, set it off to, to go off. It was on a timer. And so they did determine that there was no way he could have done all of this, gotten all the keys in time for it to not detonate. Right. And then police reviewed the footage of Brian in the bank that day, and they found it even more puzzling. He appeared so calm in the tapes. He even stopped to grab that dum-dum, like I said, and just kind of waltzed out of there with, with his cane and the bomb. And they were thinking, how could you be so calm, just taking your time, grabbing dum-dum lollipops? If you knew you had a live bomb locked around your neck, why wouldn't you be in more of a hurry, especially yeah. knowing you had the scavenger hunt to go on? Mm-hmm. And police were also puzzled by the fact that Wells was wearing two T-shirts when he died. And it seemed like whoever had set up the bomb gave him the second shirt to throw over the bomb to, like, help hide it. And it was a white T-shirt with the word guess written across it in what looked like black Sharpie. <laughs> Not like a guest t-shirt. Okay, so it's funny that you say that because when I first heard it described, I thought it was like a guest brand (laughs) t-shirt with the word guest right across it until they showed him. And I was like, oh, no, that's like written on there in Sharpie. (laughs) I'm pretty sure. Cool. Police figured that it was a taunt. Like, can you guess who did this? This whole thing left police with so many questions. First, why the scavenger hunt? What could be the purpose of sending a hostage running around the city in the middle of the day? Because they're fun. (laughs) But if you want the money, if the point is the money, 
Why are you going to allow him an opportunity to get caught? The clues were all scattered in public locations where they might be discovered. And also, how was Wells chosen to be the unlucky hostage? Yeah. And why was he so calm in the bank? And we've talked before about not basing people's guilt on behavior, which I totally believe. And, you know, at the end of part two, I'll go into some theories about his behavior. But (laughs) you'll have to wait. And then there was the other physical evidence. The cane Brian Wells came in the bank with, and of course, the bomb. The police went through this physical evidence, and they started to get a picture of whoever was behind this. They knew it had to be someone incredibly smart, someone good at designing and constructing homemade objects, someone with access to professional tools. Hmm. The cane Wells was carrying turned out to be an ingeniously crafted homemade gun that was loaded. What? So if you held it up, it, it was like one of those canes that just has a curved handle, you know? Yeah. If you hold it up at the handle so the rest of it is sticking straight out in front of you, there was a trigger under the handle and it would shoot out from the bottom of the cane oh my gosh it's like haggard's pink umbrella on harry potter which you know i'm reading it's right exactly now. like haggard's pink umbrella <laughs> a lot of harry yes. potter references lately <laughs> that's fine with me i'm i'm okay with all the harry potter references <laughs> The bomb was equally impressive. It had three parts. The hinged collar that locked around Wells's neck like a giant handcuff. Hmm. It had four keyholes and a three-digit combination lock, all ensuring that Wells would not be able to get it off without completing the scavenger hunt, which he never would have had time to do. And then attached to the collar was this iron box containing two six-inch pipe bombs. But also in the bomb, they found a lot of misdirection, things placed in there intentionally to throw off the bomb squad or anybody else trying to disable it. There were two Sunbeam kitchen timers, one electric countdown timer that had wires running through it that connected to nothing. There were stickers on the bomb with fake warnings, like saying it was (laughs) cell phone activated. And there even was a plastic cell phone in there that didn't mean anything. (laughs) It was like a puzzle. Oh, my God. The kitchen timers are funny. Like those like old like sunbeam like dial (laughs) kitchen timers. It's exactly what they were. That's how the bomb went off. (sighs) This collar bomb was the main piece of evidence. And unfortunately, it was still locked around Wells's neck. (sighs) The coroner was really concerned about the bomb being booby trapped as the note said it was. (laughs) And the decision was made that they would actually have to decapitate Wells's head to get the collar off the body. Oh my god, I'm gonna because vomit. they couldn't risk. I know they couldn't risk trying to unlock it. I'm sorry, whose job is that? Like the coroner. Yeah, but I don't think a coroner's thinking they're going to their nine to five, like chopping the head off. No, no. And he said it was the most difficult decision that he's ever had to make in his life. <sighs> and it seems 15 years later, he was um, interviewed in this documentary. It seems like that decision still really bothers him that they had to do this to Brian Wells, but it it had to be done. I mean, you're not getting a good night's sleep after that. No, no. They also tried to submit the notes for handwriting analysis, but it seemed as if someone had typed up the notes on a typewriter and then traced the typewritten letters over it. The margins and lettering matched a typewriter exactly, so the handwriting would be no good. It was just, you know, you got your Times New Roman in there. Why not just type it? I guess because that could be matched to a printer maybe or a computer or a a specific typewriter. 
because I thought about that too. But then they also had to draw all the maps and and stuff. They probably just wanted it all to be cohesive. You know? <laughs> this yeah, <laughs> this person is type A. Yeah. <laughs> so they realized from the start that whoever made this bomb and the cane gun must be some kind of handyman, someone with access to the kind of equipment that you'd need to build it. But they also knew that it would be tough to find him simply following a trail from the bomb, as most people building bombs try not to buy any of the materials that they need to make it. Well, what do you need? Um, so that they can't, like, be traced. Some kitchen timers and a 2003 cell phone? I mean, I probably got that in my grandma's house. Right. Just kidding. Don't come look for me. I'm not, I'm not building. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. Uh, well, you don't have the pipe bombs, which is probably the most important part. Yeah. And then they throw out any extra materials so that they can't be found at the work site. So police also figured that it would have taken about a month to put it together. They said it was a pretty sophisticated device, even though at the end of the day, it really was just two pipe bombs and two timers. So the FBI stepped in with support from the ATF and the state police and their investigation chasing this criminal mastermind that they started calling the collar bomber turned into their own personal scavenger hunt that seemed to have been planned as intricately as the one planned for Wells. Hmm. The feds hoped they'd get farther than he had. So they searched Wells's home and they found no physical evidence linking him to the robbery, though they did find notebooks filled with the names of local sex workers. Oh, just their names, not like contact information, which I found interesting. Hmm. His landlord said he was a really nice guy who was a good renter and he had three cats. And she said when he got excited, he'd do a little dance like Aww. that's just how he was. What about the cats? What happened to the cats? I don't have any information about the cats, but I'm pretty sure since he has this landlord who knows about the cats, the cats are fine. Okay, great. Okay. I'm sure she took the cats. Yeah. We will get to two dogs later. That oh. It, so just prepare yourself. Wait, no. Then, I, nope. I don't want any details about that. So keep it to yourself. Okay. Mm-mm. He'd take his mother to the movies or to a free concert. And she also said he really liked scavenger hunts. And that he could be someone easily influenced. Both of those I found very interesting. Interesting. So they then went to Mama Mia's Pizzeria, oh. where Wells was working on the day of the robbery. At 1.30 that day, Mama Mia's had gotten an order for two small sausage and pepperoni pizzas to be delivered pretty far out on like the outskirts of the city. Wells had worked at Mamma Mia's for 10 years, and he'd earned a reputation of being a really dependable, hard worker. He'd only ever called in late once, and that was the day his cat died. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. I know. Even though it was the end of his shift, he said he'd make the delivery, and so he left the shop with the order around 2 p.m. So the delivery brought Wells down a dirt road to a TV transmission tower site in a wooded area off of Peach Street. Investigators found shoe prints matching Wells's shoes and tire tracks matching his car and a scuff mark that indicated some sort of struggle had occurred there, but no other clues as to who lured him there or what happened once he got there. Yeah. Police were stumped, especially when three days after the heist, a friend of Brian Wells was discovered dead in his home. <gasps> his name was Robert Panetti. Oh, let me check my chart. And he worked at, uh-huh, that's on there. Okay. And he worked at Mamma Mia's with Wells. 
There was no sign of a stroke or a heart attack, so an autopsy was run, hoping to see if they could link his death and Wells in any way. They thought this was too much of a coincidence to not be connected, especially when they discovered that Panetti had been running around trying to get protection because he was worried that whoever killed Wells would be coming after him next. There's no indication on this chart if someone is deceased or not. No, there's not. Okay. Uh, do you want me to just draw a big X? Well, it? that's what I thought this <laughs> X was, but this says Bill Marge's, and then it just has an X. Is that like X? Oh, like, X boy, X B. So there should be like an E in yeah. front of there. Okay, so this is basically most unhelpful, but continue. <laughs> the main reason why I wanted you to have that flow chart is just so you could refer back to it when we talk about all these characters. You'd be like, wait, who is that? Yeah. Name? Oh, yes, that was this guy. <laughs> that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. we only have two people so far, Moga. Okay. <laughs> Just at two, Brian I know. Wells, and, and, look and at, Robert Panetti. And look at all the inaccuracies I'm pointing out here. Okay, <laughs> now I just sound like a jerk. Continue. It's interesting that he would assume that, so they must be in some type of cahoots together, if you will. Right, that he would assume that whoever killed Wells was coming yeah. after him. Yeah, I know. So yeah, so he must had have had some sort of knowledge about some the heist because like you know i'm sorry if you were brian wells in this case i would be devastated i would not be concerned for my own safety i would have said the same until we started doing a true crime podcast together now you were probably (laughs) the only person i would maybe associate myself with in that way so that's unfortunate for you (laughs) (laughs) yeah this episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. So the autopsy comp- uh, the autopsy concluded that Robert Panetti's cause of death was due to a drug overdose, and it was clear that Panetti did have a drug issue. Police thought it was possible that all the anxiety over his friend dying the way that he had caused him to take more than he should have, but it still seemed weird, and they didn't rule out that Panetti was involved in some way with this heist that killed Wells, or that his death wasn't more foul play than it appeared. Mm. The day after the heist, police had cordoned off the area around the transmission tower where Brian had delivered the pizza, 
But that didn't stop a reporter from going out there. She noticed a home near the tower site whose backyard reached almost to the tower. At the house, she saw this tall, large man in denim overalls, and she went over and introduced herself, and the man told her his name was Bill Rothstein, and he'd lived at that home for the whole 59 years of his life. Rothstein was unmarried, and he spoke fluent English, French, and Hebrew. He seemed to not notice the investigation going on in his own backyard, uh, but he agreed to lead the journalists around his yard so they could get a view of the crime scene, or a view of the scene. And they stayed for about 15 minutes and then took off. There didn't seem to be anything off about Bill Rothstein. No one had any sort of indication that he was anything other than a man who happened to own a house next to a TV tower. Which is weird. (laughs) That is until September 20th, 23 days after the bombing that killed Brian Wells. 911 got a call that said... At 8645 Peach Street, in the garage, there is a frozen body. It's in the freezer. What? That caller was Bill Rothstein, and the address he gave was his house, right next door to the pizza delivery. So he called in his own frozen body? Not Mm -hmm. his own, but like in his own garage? Yep. I need my map. Police arrived and entered the garage, which was just filled with junk, so much so that they had to make a path, like they were on an episode of Hoarders. The deputy coroner- He's old, huh? He's an old guy. He Well, he's 59. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The deputy coroner described it as Hoarders times 10. They see a tarp covering the freezer, and it's like one of those chest freezers, you know, that opens up. Wait, I don't even see this guy on my map. Bill Rothstein? Marge's X? Oh, well, there's no less. <laughs> oh, it just says Bill. <laughs> uh, my flowchart is very impressive. Thank you. Okay, Marge. <laughs> I still don't know who Marge is. Keep going. All right. So they see a tarp covering the freezer, and it's like one of those chest freezers that opens up. Yeah. So they pull the tarp back, they open it up, and they see a body in there, wrapped up like (gasps) a side of beef in a semi-fetal position, completely frozen. It took three days to thaw him out. (gasps) My God. Ew. I thought this was a heist. (laughs) Dying. And once they did, they saw, once they thawed him out, they saw his cause of death was a gunshot wound, and they placed time of death about three weeks before the bank heist. Rothstein said he'd been in so much agony for weeks over this dead body in his freezer that he'd considered suicide. He'd even written a suicide note, which police found inside a desk at his house. Actually, they found it because Rothstein told them where they could find it, and then later he'd ask again to make sure that they found the note. The suicide note was written in black marker, and in it, Rothstein identified the body in his freezer as a man named Jim Roden. He said he did not kill him, nor participate in his death, and the note ended with the disclaimer, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. So it has everything to do with the Wells case. (laughs) He said he put that in there to make sure that they wouldn't waste their time trying to figure out if the two were connected. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. So how did this dead man come to be in the freezer? Rothstein spent two days explaining the whole ordeal. He said in mid-August, he got a call from an old girlfriend named Marjorie Deal Armstrong. 
Oh, that must just be the Marjorie in the center box. Mm-hmm. Got it. They hadn't dated in over 30 years since the late 60s, early 70s, but she calls him up one dark and stormy night. That's literally how Bill described it. <laughs> comes over to his house and tells him she shot her boyfriend, Jim Roden, in the back with a Remington 12-gauge shotgun after arguing over money. Oh, my God. Was this a Dixie Chick song? <laughs> If the Dixie Chicks wrote a song about Marjorie, I would be here for that. <laughs> I think they already did once. <laughs> Goodbye, Earl. No. <laughs> yeah. No. That, that is about a woman doing what needs to be done, you know? <laughs> this is yeah. not that. This is not that. And now she needs Rothstein to come help her remove the body and clean up her house, which was about 10 miles away. He said she begged him, saying he was the only person who could help her. So what else was Rothstein to do? Call the police. He went over there, got the body, put it in a chest freezer in his garage for three weeks until he could figure out what to do with it. Oh, my God. This is not funny, but like, that's probably why y'all broke up, because she's crazy. (laughs) You don't go over there and help her. Oh my god. He said he wanted to get it out of her house so she wouldn't get in trouble. And he melted down the shotgun and scattered the pieces all over Erie County. But Marjorie wanted the body completely destroyed. He was supposed to grind up the body once it was frozen, but he Ew. said he couldn't go through with it. Because that's disgusting. I know. And they actually did find a meat grinder in his garage. Marjorie said the meat grinder was all Bill's idea. But Bill said he bought it to buy more time. The whole thing had been tormenting him, and he called 911 because he was afraid of what Marjorie was going to do to him. Yeah. Marjorie was actually at Bill's house when police arrived, just ranting and raving because they were there and she wanted them to leave. The police that were there said they didn't think she'd bathed in weeks. But they arrested her while she screamed about how Bill had done it, he'd killed Rodin, and she'd had nothing to do with it. They pulled her into an interrogation room, and while they're walking her there, she's going on and on about how Bill Rothstein is a filthy liar that's going to get sued. And police didn't see her as someone to fear. They saw her as someone who was mentally ill. So police start looking into this Marjorie Deal Armstrong and... Oh, boy, what they find. Turns out Marjorie was kind of known around town as this black widow with a string of dead exes behind her. What? One ex-boyfriend hung himself after she moved out. Another died from a skeptical overdose. In 1984, when she was 35, she was actually arrested for murdering her boyfriend, Robert Thomas, Marjorie said she shot him six times in self-defense and she was acquitted, but she told friends she'd gotten away with murder. Wait, how does this person, how does Rob, how does someone kill this many people? (laughs) I know, that's what I'm picturing. Well, Rob Thomas is also the creator of Veronica Mars. Different, different Rob Thomas. (laughs) Yeah. I don't understand how someone keeps like burying boyfriends and no one's like Mm. caught on. Yeah, I. Yeah, yeah. You don't know either. It's fine. I don't. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. I'd be very concerned if you started rattling off how she did it. Robert Thomas had been sleeping on the couch when she unloaded the gun into him, and she told police they'd been in the middle of him beating her up. And 
we talked about this in a previous episode. I do believe that when you're talking about long-term domestic violence and abuse, that a partner doesn't have to be in the middle of attacking you for you to be acting in self-defense. But this whole situation seems fishy, especially when four years later, her husband, Richard Armstrong, the only man that she ever married, died in the hospital of a cerebral hemorrhage after falling and hitting his head on a coffee table. His death was ruled accidental and Marjorie actually ended up suing the hospital for negligence and ended up getting a $175,000 settlement. And then, fun fact, before they buried him, Marjorie asked for a piece of his leg bone in case she was able to clone him one day. What? And Wait, is that possible? No. No. (laughs) But in case the technology ever comes about, she wanted to be prepared. I'm not asking for a human. It was about my dog. I don't know about dogs. I will pay all the money to clone my dog. And now Jim Roden. Jim was more timid than Marjorie, and he was described as her puppet, someone who would do just about anything Marjorie wanted. If you tried to stand up to her, she would get so mad. Their relationship was pretty volatile. They fought all the time. He even shoved her into the stove one time. She'd tell him to his face that she'd kill him, that she'd have him knocked off. And other times they'd be the perfect lovebirds. You know, until she shot mm. him in the back and murdered him, that is. Yeah. She seems to really know how to pick him. Yeah. So there are at least five men in Marjorie's life that died prematurely of either strange circumstances or from her actually murdering them. And I'm pretty sure that Marjorie Deal Armstrong is actually a serial killer. Mm, yeah. Sounds in- like that. <laughs> In fact, it seems like literally the only boyfriend she'd ever had that made it through their relationship alive was Bill Rothstein. This might be because she saw Bill as an equal, someone she could relate to on an intellectual level. Marjorie was the last person that Bill had ever seriously dated. They'd even been – and remember, they were dating 30 years ago, like in the late 60s. They're just like pals now. Yeah. They'd even been engaged at one point with a flawless diamond that Bill bought her from Bennett Brothers in New York. But their relationship was on and off, and Bill told Marjorie that his life had turned downhill after she broke off their engagement. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it. (laughs) Marjorie is definitely an interesting character. As a child, she was tall and awkward and lonely, but she grew into this really beautiful woman. I mean, she was super cute. Her milkshake brought all the boys to the yard. Yeah. In high school, Marjorie was known as someone who was exceptionally intelligent. And she stated in this documentary multiple times that she has a genius IQ. I'm not convinced that that's true, but they did say it was like she had an encyclopedic knowledge of literature, history, and the law. Uh, She went on to get her master's in education. A friend of hers described Marjorie as fascinating and magnetic, but so intense that she'd have to go home and relax after spending any time with Marjorie. Marjorie also suffered either from bipolar disorder, which presented with sharp mood swings, a nonstop rapid fire speech, and paranoia. She could be on the phone for three hours and not let the other person get a single word in. Hmm. One psychiatrist said it's possible she's not mentally ill and just suffers from narcissism and a severe personality disorder. Disorder. She did take a variety of medications throughout her life. And due to the troubles with her mental health, she couldn't hold a job and she started letting herself go. She no longer resembles the person she was when she was young at all. 
1984, while investigating Robert Thomas's death, the boyfriend that she claimed to kill in self-defense, investigators found 400 pounds of butter and like 700 pounds of rotting cheese inside her disaster of a house. Ew. Psychiatrists deemed her mentally incompetent to stand trial for the murder of Robert Thomas seven times before a judge finally ruled her fit. And the documentary interviewed Marjorie's defense attorney from 1984, and he said that defending her was his punishment on Earth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said she had to brush her teeth 32 times a day. He had her committed uh, four times, and each time the mental health system sent her back out. It's so weird. She was like obsessed with brushing her teeth, but then she has like moldy cheese everywhere. I don't understand. Right. Yeah. He said that we shouldn't even be talking about collar bombs or FBI and ATF agents. She was sick and she should have been confined back in 1984. This should never have been able to happen. When police went through her house searching for evidence on the death of James Roden, they found her house to be along the lines of Rothstein's hoarding. There was clutter upon clutter, trash, even feces. She was someone who didn't trust banks and kept huge amounts of cash on hand. Police found a bunch of cats in her house, at least two of which were dead. Cash and cats just everywhere. Just cash and cats everywhere. Cash and cats. Sounds like a rap song. Like a Taylor Swift rap song. I knew she was going to make it in this. Cash and cats. I knew she'd make it. Girl, show up. Uh, Yeah, we can't have a single episode where we don't bring up Taylor Swift. Taylor, if you're listening, I hear you're a fan of true crime podcasts. Yeah, I'm sure she would love to be a part of this story. This is a great story, Mogan. I agree. I'm just like... There's a lot happening that's not even on the chart, I, <laughs> much less what's on there. Yeah. That's why I made you that chart. All right. There's a lot. Oh, good. So the FBI figured that whoever was behind this collar bomb case had to be murderous, eccentric, and have a need to show off their incredible intelligence, as well as someone who could keep a secret. And Marjorie seemed to fit the bill perfectly. Really? Because she just sounds like a messy mess to me. Well, she's eccentric. That would be the messy mess part. She's murderous, hence the five uh, boyfriends, and constantly talking about how smart she is. So police immediately connect the two cases, the murder of Jim Roden and Brian Wells, because of the location of the pizza delivery, that it was right by. Like, what are the odds? We got this bomb. This guy goes to deliver the pizzas. They put the bomb on him, and it's right next door to a house with a dead body inside of it. Yeah, that's normal. It was... Something else super odd. It it just couldn't be a coincidence. But they didn't really think Bill could be involved in the heist. He just wasn't that type of guy. One of the troopers even knew Bill. He'd been the best man in the wedding of an in-law of his. He This trooper described Bill as maybe a bit eccentric, but everyone agreed that he was harmless. Bill was actually a lot like Marjorie. Both definitely had this super inflated sense of self They both talked a lot. They both had extreme hoarding issues. But this article I read in Vulture made a really interesting point. While the documentary spent quite a lot of screen time pointing out all of Marjorie's mental illnesses and really painting her as like the crazy lady, Mm -hmm. no one ever calls Bill crazy. 
So let's go into Bill a little bit. His family ran a bottling plant, and he was like this rich kid who was bullied in school, called names like Dirty Jew. He took, I know, he took some college classes but dropped out to run the family business. And his lifelong friends called him the perfect friend, someone they wouldn't have thought had a mean bone in his body. But they also knew he was extremely intelligent. His friends said he wasn't a finisher. He never finished college, never got his pilot's license like he said he was going to, never finished anything in his life. He'd just give up and move on to something else. But that didn't mean he wasn't incredibly smart. Yeah. His friends also didn't like Marjorie. Bill's best friend described her as nasty, controlling. He said she thought the world revolved around her and she could do anything she wanted and get away with it. But this friend said that Bill had a thing for her, like she'd been able to get into his psyche and live there. Ooh, things. 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 Yeah, she's taken up a lot of rent in his head. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Rent-free. A lot of space rent-free. Bill also had financial problems due to him spending all his parents' money. His brother John said that their parents had had so much money, and it was all gone now. Right before the bank heist, there had been a major family feud. His brother and sister wanted to sell the house that Bill had been living in rent-free ever since their parents died. But Bill was the executor of the estate, and he didn't want to move. Was it his parents' house? It was his parents' house, and then when they died, he just kept living there. I don't think he ever moved out. Yeah. And then he wasn't paying any rent there. You know, it was free. Mm Mm-hmm. So he lied and he told his siblings that he listed the house for $90,000 when he actually put it on the market for $250,000. No one's buying that. No, that was way too high for that house. But he was insistent that that's what he wanted for it. It was also the exact amount that Wells (gasps) requested at the bank. Robbery. That's right. (laughs) His friends said he turned mean after this as if his entire personality changed. On September 21st, 2003, FBI agent Jerry Clark went in to interview Bill because he thought James Roden's death might be connected to Brian Wells. This was the day after Bill had called 911 about the body in his freezer and turned Marjorie in for killing Roden. Agent Clark said the first thing that Bill Rothstein said to him when he walked in was, I just want you to know I'm the smartest guy in this room. (gasps) Wow. Mm-hmm. Agent Clark asked Bill about the relationship between Wells and Rodin, and Bill said there was no relationship, and also he's not comfortable talking about them. Yeah. But Agent Clark is putting all of these things together. The three deaths, Brian Wells, Robert Panetti, and James Rodin. Brian and Wells connected to Panetti through the pizza place, and James Rodin's dead body was found in a freezer in a house right next to where Brian Wells was delivering a pizza. He knew they were related, but he just couldn't prove it. Yeah, I can't figure out the Panetti thing. Yeah, it's – and that's a connection that still has a lot of questions. Um, yeah. There's some theories, but – I'm sure we'll get to those in the second episode. We, we will <laughs> in part two. Bill Rothstein was cooperating fully with police, and so he was let out on bail while Marjorie was kept locked up. Bill walked police through Marjorie's house, detailing how the body was lying on the bed when he found it, how he dragged it down the stairs, how he attempted to clean up with hydrogen peroxide afterwards because Marjorie thought that that would get rid of evidence of blood. Mm -hmm. 
but he didn't say anything that could implicate him in Rodin's actual murder. He then walked them through his house on Peach Street and showed them all the things in the garage that he'd brought over from Marjorie's house and showed them how he'd melted down the shotgun. And as he's walking the police through the house, he keeps making these comments like, you know what manic depressives are, right? And talking about how Marjorie's a manic depressive. And he describes Marjorie as going into histrionics when they're talking. And look, I'm not saying that that's not all true about her, but he did a really great job of forming this picture of Marjorie in a you-know-how-crazy-women-are kind of way. You know, it's it's almost like watching a magician use misdirection to get the police to look over here, don't look at me, look at Marjorie, the crazy lady, the manic-depressive, the convicted murderer. It's weird that they wouldn't, like, I don't know, clue into that a little bit. Like, I feel like that would be, yeah. like, so blatant. And when you when you watch the video, you really see the police, like, when you're watching the video of, the, of him walking them through the house, they're treating him very deferentially. And it is interesting. Yeah. He took a polygraph test and he almost fell asleep during the test, but he passed it. However, Agent Clark knows as well as we do that polygraph tests don't mean anything, and Clark knew that Bill was smart enough to figure out how to beat it. And I think the fact that he almost fell asleep shows that it was a totally inaccurate test. If you've managed to make yourself that relaxed that you're almost yeah. falling asleep, you're not going to show deception on a polygraph. It Right. It's it's tracking your stress levels, you know? And he knows that if he's the smartest guy. In the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He'd also been keeping a really big secret from the FBI. He'd had a roommate, Floyd Stockton, who had suddenly moved out of Bill's house the day after the bank heist. He was on the run from criminal charges for raping a disabled teenage girl in another state. So real prize there. This is the worst case we've ever done. This is the worst (laughs) case. Worst case. This is the best case. What are you talking about? My God. Ew. The FBI did track Floyd Stockton down, and he said he didn't know anything about any of it, the heist or James Roden's body in the freezer, and he also passed a polygraph. So a month into the collar bomb heist investigation, Stockton and Rothstein were cleared by the FBI in any involvement in the bank robbery because no one thought a person could have the gall to have a dead body in the freezer and then call up a pizza delivery right next door and put a a collar bomb on him even though Bill also matched the FBI profile almost exactly. It said the collar bomber would be someone frugal, a pack rat, someone mechanical, who was hiding a violent nature and who may have moved. Rothstein cut a great deal, and his sentence was only a couple of years for misdemeanor charges like abuse of a corpse. Ew. And at this point, the FBI is publicly saying that they no longer think there's any connection between James Roden's murder and the collar bomb heist. Marjorie publicly stated that Rothstein should be charged with the murder of Brian Wells, and she would say it to anyone who would listen. But no one asked her about it, and no one asked Mm -hmm. Bill about it either. No one investigating the collar bomber was paying any attention to what was going on with Marjorie or Bill Rothstein. Yeah, so like this Floyd, Bill, Marjorie, and James is like its own separate little thing right now, right? Kind of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then like Brian and the Robert Panetti thing. I mean, the connection obviously is that Brian delivered the pizza to Bill's house. 
but mm-hmm. to next door to Bill's house, yeah. Yeah, next door. Mm-hmm. Not his, it, the pizza wasn't for him? No, it was to a TV transmission tower, like, yeah. in their backyard. They don't know who the pizza was for. That's who they're trying to figure out, is who is responsible for putting this collar bomb around Brian Wells' neck. And they thought that Bill had something to do with it and Marjorie because of this dead body in the freezer, but they can't find any connection between them. So they no longer think that they're involved. Wait, I think my problem is this is an embarrassing question. When you say the TV transmission tower, it's literally just a tower. There's not like people that work in it. Like, a- correct. Yeah. It's just a tower in the middle of a field. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of like, you know, how like it, like airports, the tower, there's like Michigan, right. not mission control. What are they called? <laughs> traffic control. <laughs> Air traffic control. I'm thinking they, there was like people ordered the pizza that work in this tower. No, this is like literally the thing you see in the backyard that's like. Yeah. yeah. It's like okay, one of those. So, it's like a cell phone tower kind of looks like, you know, it's just like a tower in the middle of this field, nothing around it. But how does the tower have an address? I think that they just kind of told him how to get there. I'm at this TV transmission tower out off Peach Street in the woods oh, back here and sent him okay. out there. Yeah. Okay. Why anybody weird. would be there, I don't know. Because I've seen pictures. There. I, I don't even remember seeing like a structure or anything at the transmission tower. Like no, no place where somebody could actually be working. Well, and if you call me and say like, hey, I'm in this wooded area near this tower with no other thing like come bring me pizza that's a hard no for me like I'm not well and that. I don't I I honestly I I've never worked at a pizza place but I know Uber Eats ain't coming out to you out there you know yeah I actually right. don't know that maybe they would I don't know you got no, I don't G- think so. PS maybe but it's <laughs> okay I was confused because you were saying tower and like I knew what I was what you were saying but then I'm thinking like well yeah someone called it out okay so no one is making the connection in these two, really. Right. Even though they both have said, it has nothing to do with that thing. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, Bill has said <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. Marjorie is sitting here saying, publicly stating that Rothstein should be charged with the murder of Brian Wells. She would say it to anyone who would listen. Right. But I wonder why she's even saying that. Like, where is she even getting that? Right. News. Yeah. But no one asked her about it. And no one asked Bill about it either. No one investigating the collar bomber was paying any attention to what was going on with Marjorie or Bill Rothstein. Bill Rothstein died of lymphoma about 10 months after making that 911 call. And he denied any involvement in the collar bomb heist until his dying breath. In January 2005, 16 months after the heist, Marjorie pled guilty but mentally ill to the murder of James Roden and was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in a state prison. She's still there? We will get to where she is. The team of agents investigating the collar bomber all but forgot about Bill Rothstein and Marjorie Deal Armstrong and the murder of James Roden until they got a call from a state police officer who had met with Marjorie about a different homicide. And he told them that Rothstein's suicide note had been a complete lie when it said that Roden's body in the freezer had nothing to do with the Wells case. Turns out it had everything to do with the Wells case. I saw that coming. This officer said that Brian Wells, the pizza delivery guy that had been forced at gunpoint into a bomb around his neck, was not an innocent victim. He'd been in on the whole plan. What? No, no one signs up for that. And the mastermind behind the plan? Why... That had been Bill Rothstein. (gasps) 
No. What about Marjorie's bitch ass? That's the end of part. Well, this is what Marjorie no, is saying. No. <laughs> no. That's no, the end no, of no. part one. I can't believe you're leaving it like this. Well, I got to give you a reason to come back for <sighs> more. It's a good story. Come back for part two next week. Literally next- one whole week. Yeah, we release these episodes once a week, so. (laughs) Yeah, I do work here, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Except last week. We skipped last week. Sorry about that, everybody. But you were here. I was there. Oh, my God. Speaking of, that just reminded me. What? So when I was home for Christmas, I was going through, you know, like a box of stuff from college, like letters and whatever. This makes me sound like we went to college in the 60s, but (laughs) I, I I had some newspaper clippings in there. That sounds crazy, but it's true. Well, I was like looking through my box and I found one and it was like in um, the dorm, there was a man standing. I think I told you this happened to us. There was a man that came into our dorm room. Yes. I should. I mean, he was like late 20s and he was standing above. It woke me up and he was standing above my roommate's bed and I screamed and he ran out and we I don't know what came over us but we chased him down the hall. He had grabbed purses off of her like bedpost. She had like hung her purses on her bedpost and he just grabbed a bunch of them and took off and we started running. And then I guess our other roommate was smart enough to like call the police while we were running and he ran into the end hall where um the washer like the big washing machine was and he dumped all of the purses in the washing machine and then took off and the cops caught him though. But he was in our was he a student? Uh no, he was like not he was like college age, I think, or maybe he was like 25, 26 and was um a resident like in the town, but not Oh my like, a god. I know. And to think like at the time we were freaked out, but I think that next night we all stayed there. Like it wasn't yeah. like I went and slept somewhere else. Yeah. And now I'm like, what the just maybe lock Anyways. your door. and But that's like – Yeah, but I forgot about that. I was like, wait, how did this happen? And I totally forgot about it until I read this thing in the school newspaper that I decided to like clip out and save. Do you know what – do you know what dorm experience of yours I remember? Yeah, <laughs> us getting arrested. Yes. Or not arrested. Handcuffed but and handcuffed. thrown on the floor. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For something we did not do. No. <laughs> I know. And I would out that girl now, but I don't know what could get me. Yeah. She literally, there was three of us in a dorm room and she sold drugs, right? Well, I don't know if she sold them. She had them. All I know is I woke up to a knock that was like, boom, boom, boom. It was 730 in the morning. And it was like, San Marcos police, we have a search and arrest warrant for narcotics. And I was like, what the Oh, my God. I was a sophomore. I was like, narcotics. <laughs> like, I remember thinking, like, narcotics. What are nar- I, I mean, I obviously knew what they were, but I remember thinking, like, someone's smoking weed in here? Like, I don't know. I was It was not out. weed. <laughs> no, it was not. And it was hidden throughout our dorm room, and we had no idea. Oh, my God. The best part was, you know, the part where I think I told you when they went to open, we had that stinky mini fridge ah. that was in the – and they, anytime you opened it, like the room would smell for like several minutes oh, and the cops were searching everything and we're like handcuffed on the floor. This is before they took me out into the hallway. Cause you know, I lunged at her uh, with no uh, arms. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so they took me outside and, um, but they go to open the fridge and all three, as soon as they go, we both go, we all yell, no. And they were like, 
okay, they are definitely going to dismantle this fridge now piece by piece, which they did. But we only yelled that because we knew it was going to smell like butthole. (laughs) Glad we could reminisce on that. That's your true crime experience. I know. I had multiple. I mean, none that were caused by me, obviously. Right. But as you can see. But those two situations happened in the same dorm room. Yeah. Yeah. A couple lawsuits, couple uh, (laughs) intruders, house drugs, house fires. (laughs) God, when you say it all like that, it sounds much more dramatic than I recall. No, this is 100% how I think about you all the time. I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, nobody has the life Mogab has. And it's not even due to anything that she's ever done. It's just her living her life and these things just happen to her. It's so wild too because I would never think that. And then when I was home for over the break, someone was like, "I was." We were talking. And they were like, "You have the best stories." And I was like, "Oh my god, I'm just out here living my life." <laughs> and apparently, it's you know, comical. I know, and it's not like you even live in like some really interesting. Like this was in San Marcos. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait. I love that place. Uh, well, I would like to go this summer. You know, every summer I'm trying to go to the watermelon thumping Luling. That's uh, that should sponsor this podcast sponsored by Luling, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, uh, did right. you hear about that kid no. that went missing in Luling? What? Yeah. No. There's not a lot to tell. I think uh. something terrible happened to him, but he was <gasps> driving home for like the holidays from college from Texas State and they found his car like. I think it was kind of like crashed on the side of the road. I'm not sure how damaged it was. All his stuff, his wallet, his phone, everything was in the car and he was just gone. And what? they've been trying to find him and they can't. They have This haven't. sounds like that Texas Month. I have only read a few issues of that Texas Monthly. Uh-huh. Tom Brown's body. I haven't listened to any of it. I need to. I've heard Amazing. Oh, wait, this is two weeks ago. This is recent. Official search for Texas State student after a van vehicle found near Luling. He was coming home from these holidays for these holidays. Have they, are there any updates? What's his name? Jason? Jason Landry. Jason Landry. Missouri City. He was going to Houston. That's very, but it was in Luling. His like car was crashed in Luling. And yeah. Which is weird because literally when you're leaving Texas State, you Mm -hmm. go. Turn right at the light, turn left at the light, yeah. and then you're literally to get out to of Houston. Yeah. You don't even like go into it, really. No, it was just on Aww. the side of the road, just outside of Luling. This looks like a cute little young kid. I know. Yeah, it's just freaking sad. He's 21. Oh my God, how many times have I driven that? I know. Late at night, early, early in the morning. That's wild. Real quick. Uh huh. Last night, we opened Christmas gifts. For each other, one of which is a DNA test for a little chowder over here. So I'm very excited. Chowder's getting a DNA test. He's going to be 100% that bitch. I know. He is. (laughs) He is. And 100% perfect in every little way. But you know, I was dreading it because I'm worried we're going to get it back. And he's going to have no chow chow in him. And then how will I ever be able to call him chowder? Please. Please. I know. That's what Russell says. He's like, he's got a black tongue. I'm like, but still, we don't know 100%. Well, now you will. And you can still call him Chow Chow because he looks like a Chow Chow. And then the story can be, yeah, we call him Chowder because he looks like a Chow, even though he's not because we got the DNA test. I know. We were like guessing, like, what if it's like Golden Retriever, German Shepherd, Chihuahua. (laughs) I definitely think he has some golden in him, 100% for sure. 
Golden and Chow. Chow. Golden and Chow. That's what I think. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Collar Bomb Heist. Check us out on Instagram if you want to see our awesome flow chart that I <laughs> created and any other um, images from this episode. And thank you to everybody who's given us a rating and a review on iTunes. It, like, makes our day. We are almost at 100. We're, like, at 75. So I feel like our next goal is 100. So if you could help us get there, we would so appreciate it. That would be amazing. It really helps us grow the podcast. Um, If you have any suggestions or feedback for this episode, email us at creeperspod at gmail.com. And also find us on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Creepers Pod. And peace out, peeps and creeps. Ooh, my voice. I... That's, that was dirty. <laughs> <laughs>